It was the morning of August 29, 2005. The storm had just whipped through your city, and it was relatively calm now, but the truth was that it was an eerie feeling. Hundreds of people woke up today not knowing that today would be their last day. Others woke up not knowing that today would be the day that their world turned upside down. Today, we're talking about none other than Hurricane Katrina. Last week, we touched on events that happened before Katrina to better shape our understandings about what caused Katrina to be so catastrophic. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to do so and check back in with me so that you can hear the whole story. If you're caught up, welcome back. I'm Condoleezza, but you can call me Condi, and it's time for us to have a conversation. Saturday, August 27, 2005. Meteorologists and reporters are warning of what they call a textbook nightmare hurricane. For some, the warm air and the blue skies give you a false sense of security. For others, it does them no good because they have no way to get out, nowhere to go, and for some, it was both. You and your family have lived out big hurricanes before, so this shouldn't be something new. But it was new. You wake up on Monday morning to a big boom like an explosion and the next thing you know, your home and the city as you know it is slowly filling with water. When Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans, it was recorded as a Category 3 hurricane. This means that the levee should have been able to withstand the force of the winds and the water, but they didn't. Now that's a topic for later on in this discussion, so right now we're going to address the week prior the warnings, and how the city, state, and federal officials dealt with it. The mayor of New Orleans during 2005 was Ray Nagin, the governor of Louisiana was Kathleen Blanco, and the president was George Bush. Katrina had begun developing on August 23rd as a tropical depression, and the National Hurricane Center began tracking it and issued the first of 61 advisories. The federal government also began tracking it. The next day, the tropical depression became a tropical storm and gained the name Katrina. By then, FEMA had caught on and allegedly began dispatching resources to places that were possibly going to be hit. A lot of these resources never made it to New Orleans. Now, considering the fact that they knew the hurricane was coming and it was gaining momentum every day, they had an ample amount of time to prepare New Orleans for the hurricane, but they didn't. From the footage and audio recordings I've watched and listened to, Ray Nagin did warn about the pumps and how they needed repairs. To make matters worse, FEMA had just done a simulation of a Category 3 hurricane hitting New Orleans three days before Katrina made landfall. Not to mention, there was a 113-page plan on what would happen if a large hurricane had hit New Orleans. In this plan, it said that there could be thousands of fatalities, floating coffins, and that there could be a large quantity of hazardous waste that would result in airborne and waterborne contamination. The local and federal government had warnings, but you know who didn't get the dire warnings? The people of New Orleans. Apparently, the government and city officials decided to issue a voluntary citywide evacuation notice 
two days before, and a mandatory evacuation the night before. It became so dire to the point that one NOPD SWAT officer said this. I went as far as telling people, I said, well, just do me a favor, make life easy on us. Take a permanent marker, write your social security number along one arm and one leg. So when we find your body, we can check the social security records and find out who you are. That we don't have to try and fingerprint a decomposed body. Meanwhile, Florida and Mississippi declared a state of emergency days before. And I've heard people say things in situations like this that, oh, they should have left, or why didn't they stay, or why did they stay, why didn't they evacuate. So you tell me if you're able to just jump up and move with barely a two days forewarning that you'll potentially lose everything because I, for one, can't. Not to mention that, but a lot of these people were homeowners and living in generational homes. And not even that, but some people didn't have means to leave. There have been a lot of false alarms when it comes to hurricanes, and the shift or their impact doesn't even do anything to cities. There's a little hurricane season down south, or specifically for Louisiana. Moral of the story is that evacuating can become exhausting. False alarms are a thing, and even if people did believe the warnings and wanted to evacuate, sometimes they had no way or nowhere to go. So those who stayed, boarded up their windows, raised their valuables to a higher place, and they waited. Those who wanted to get out tried their best, but traffic was bumper to bumper. Some got out, and unfortunately, others got stuck on the Twin Span Bridge. There were doomsday reports of this hurricane days before because of how great the situation could be. Unfortunately, people around the country couldn't believe it. And I almost forgot. A passenger train offered to help evacuate the people of New Orleans. City officials declined this offer. By midnight of August 28, 2005, nothing and no one was coming in or out of New Orleans. The mayor, Ray Nagin, stayed in the city when the storm made landfall, as well as throughout the storm. Our president, George Bush, went on vacation. By daybreak, the hurricane would have passed over the city of New Orleans. What's most unfortunate about the day of the storm is that a lot of the timing and details are foggy, which leads to further debates of the honesty and integrity of certain reports. All the reports have the same fact that the morning of August 29th was a regular day until the people of various communities heard loud booms as if explosions were going off. Before the levees failed, something critical happened. The pumps failed. The pumps across the city were electrical pumps, and of course, electricity and water don't mix. So as the pump stations started to flood, they also lost their purpose and began to stop working. The situation was dire, and the station workers did like the people in the boiler room during the Titanic. They begged for help, and they tried to keep them on as long as possible, but eventually, they had to evacuate the station. When the pumps failed, the situation became dire, and the outcome was evident. There was no way they could prevent water from reaching the city. So we know that the pumps failed, and then water began rushing towards the city. 
What isn't clear is the strength of the storm and whether the levees broke during or after the storm surge. When it comes to the strength of the storm, I commonly have heard that it hit the city of New Orleans at a Category 3 strength. Other reports claim that when it hit New Orleans, it was a Category 5 strength, which is essentially the strongest strength possible. According to NPR, this is how the timeline on August 29th went. At 9.08 a.m. on August 29th, a brief from the Transportation Security Administration notes that the Industrial Canal levee had been breached. There is heavy street flooding throughout Orleans, St. Bernard, and Jefferson Parishes, the brief notes. A senior watch officer at Homeland Security Operations Center receives that brief at 11.41 a.m. Six minutes later, a flash flood warning from the National Weather Service notes a levee breach occurred along the Industrial Canal. Three to eight feet water is expected. 9.36 a.m., FEMA Coordinator Matthew Green emails FEMA's Michael Lauder, Deputy Director of Response, that the Industrial Canal has failed. 10 a.m., Department of Homeland Security Advisor Louis Dabal, Dab Dow. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but bear with me sends an email to officials at Homeland Security and its main operations center. It reads, it's getting bad. Major flooding in some parts of the city. People are calling in for rescue. The bad part has not hit yet. Twelve minutes later, FEMA's chief of staff finds out people are trapped in their attics. At 11.51 a.m., Michael Lauder, FEMA's deputy director of response, has been informed that the 17th Street Canal has been breached and a FEMA official on the ground in New Orleans responds, I'm being told here, water over, not a breach. Around 6 o'clock is where things get weird, because that's when a report from Homeland Security Operations says preliminary reports indicate that levees in New Orleans have not been breached. If this is the case, then that means none of the reports earlier were true, which also means the levees didn't fail during the storm, but rather the day following. If that sounds suspicious, that's because it is. So the more research I do, the more infuriated I get because to be honest, this is really government failure. And when you look deeper and deeper, I tend to question, was this intentional? Or was this truly the federal government and FEMA being totally oblivious and simply not caring? But by midnight of August 29th, New Orleans was in a dire situation. According to the timeline provided by NPR, starting at 9.29 p.m., new reports came in by John Wood, Chief of Staff for Homeland Security, Michael Shirtoff, that reads in part, the first unconfirmed reports they are getting from aerial surveys in New Orleans are far more serious than media reports are currently reflecting. 10.30 p.m., a Homeland Security situation reporter repeats, reads, there's a quarter-mile breach in the levee near the 17th Street Canal. An estimated two-thirds to 75% of the city is underwater. A few bodies were seen floating in the water. This report reaches the White House at midnight, according to congressional investigators. But remember, our gracious and very, and I mean very, invested president is still on vacation in Texas. So there's that. By 6 a.m. August 30th, a Homeland Security situation report 
states that the industrial canal and 17th Street Canal levees have been breached. It says much of downtown in East New Orleans is underwater, depth unknown at this time. Widespread and significant flooding has occurred throughout the city, but let's look at how each levee failed, starting with the London Avenue Canal and the 17th Street Canal. Before we get into the demise of these neighborhoods, let's remember that the people living here were working people. They were homeowners. They were intelligent. They were not what stereotypes might tell you. In my last episode, I talked about the levees and penny pinching, the situations that the 17th Street and the London Avenue Canal were faced with were similar in design as well as failure. Since raising the height of the walls was three times as expensive as creating floodgates at the mouth of the canal, the U.S. Army Corps vouched for them to create the floodgates. These gates did not include auxiliary pumps, but luckily, in 1991, the Orleans Levee Board and the Sewerage and Water Board decided to go through with a more expensive plan, and the Army Corps installed higher eye walls. Before Katrina, the neighborhood adjacent to the breach site was a thriving community of black and white homeowners. According to NewOrleansHistorical.org, at about 9.30 a.m., two 30-foot-long sections of the flood wall failed, sending storm surge in the Gentilly neighborhood, killing hundreds of people directly and indirectly, and causing millions of dollars in damages. Post-disaster studies proved that this was because of the steel sheet pilings being driven into the soil too shallow, causing the levee to crack. Although the situations were the same, the outcomes were different. We'll talk about what happened to these communities after the storm in my next episode, but right now, let's talk about the industrial canal and what allegedly caused it to fail. Now, one question that I still have is, How did the levees fail after the storm in the ways that they did, and specifically the Industrial Canal? Why is the timeline and communication with the federal government so fuzzy? Why are people saying the levees failed because the storm was too big when others said the storm didn't hit New Orleans straight on and it should have survived? Keeping in mind that the pumps failed, let me try to paint my ideas. I'm not a big fan of confusing timelines, and first-hand accounts sound different than federal reports. I've heard that the storm had passed, then the levees broke. I've heard that the pressure of the water during the storm caused the levee to break. I heard a barge caused the levee to break. But the way the Army Corps described the failure was by scouring, which means water would go over the levee and dig the soil to where it basically uprooted and destabilized the levee, causing it to collapse. To me... It just seems like it should have failed during the hurricane due to the wind and the storm surge. The water not receding after the storm shouldn't have been a reason for scouring. That's just based off the research I did. It's not necessarily facts, but it is something to think about. Something that shouldn't be taken lightly is the first-hand accounts of hearing an explosion and people actually recalling the levees being blown up. I've attached the video of David and Dixie Gonzalez recalling their experience of Hurricane Katrina and living in the Lower Ninth Ward. I encourage you to hear their stories. What was spread throughout the state and the country in post-storm research was that the industrial, industrial 
Canal failed because of an initial breach near Pump Station 5, where the operators were begging for help. At around 7.45, a second breach occurred because a barge was pushed across the industrial canal and caused the destruction of the entire Lower Ninth Ward. The post-Katrina studies also concluded that the eye walls were overtopped by flood walls and the water dug into the ground, or like previously said, scouring. But who am I to deny and discount the first-hand accounts? You know, unrelated people saying the same thing is pretty convincing because, you know, but to each his own. Even the Washington Post reports that the Army Corps of Engineers spun the story of the 17th and the London Avenue canals. So I would expect that with allegations this big, they will fabricate this as well. But what do I know, right? Some people say it's paranoia. Some people say it's facts. You decide what it is to you. Yes, there was flooding throughout the city before the levees failed, whether purposely or due to the storm. By the end of the day, 28 breaches were recorded. Speculations, allegations, and recollections of the levees were also recorded, and in my next episode, I'll address what happens with all of that. I encourage you to form your own opinion, because when it comes to the failure of the levees, both sides of the arguments are valid. The speculation that I've heard when discussing why they would blow the levees is because they wanted to gentrify New Orleans and save the French Quarter. If you think to yourself that the government wouldn't do that... I encourage you to go listen to my previous episode and look into the bombing of the levees in Missouri in 2011. The 2011s in Missouri were blown up to save a city by flooding surrounding farmland by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The same Army Corps that was over the levees in New Orleans. Another thing that got to me when looking at this timeline is that when I saw people were stuck in their attic, I didn't see that federal aid was on their way. Like Whether or not you knew the reports were valid or whatever, you still had a 113-page report detailing how detrimental this could be for New Orleans. Who in their right mind wouldn't give relief to New Orleans immediately, especially when they knew it was going to be bad? The federal government... FEMA, and as a result, the Red Cross as well. Basically, the city is going underwater. People are drowning and doing their best to survive and get to shelters. Around this time of the episode is where it gets a little explicit because honestly, it doesn't get much better. For the people still trapped in New Orleans, the next few days were going to be hell. So we start off August 30th reporting that 80% of New Orleans is underwater and the tensions in the city are getting worse and worse. The local officials are trying their best, but they're begging for the federal government to help because people are getting desperate, and as they should be. You've just lost everything, and for some, it was your whole family. So a lot of the people that are important to me have ties from New Orleans. My best friend since middle school was born in New Orleans, and as a matter of fact, if it had not been for Katrina, my life and their lives would have been extremely different. Of course, I listened to their stories, and we learned about it in class as well. Did I force the teacher to talk about it? Maybe. (laughs) Did the documentaries make my whole class cry and stem my obsession with talking about it? Again. 
Maybe. But there's two accounts that I want to share with you. So there was a girl in my class from New Orleans who I had became friends with. I truly wish her the absolute best in life and prosperity. And she told me how her family was deciding whether or not they should leave. And they decided they would. Her grandfather did not. To him, New Orleans was home and you couldn't just find that anywhere. So he stayed. We were younger at the time, but it was almost a decade later and they still didn't find his body. Another friend of mine remembers touching dead bodies accidentally as she evacuated because she didn't know there were bodies. My dad lived in New Orleans for a large portion of his life, and his best friend was from the Lower Ninth Ward. He remembers returning home to a car on his roof. These stories can be heard coming from other people as well. Being stranded on your roof, trying to make it to the Superdome, eventually trying to leave the Superdome because the living conditions were abhorrent. Countless deaths around the city, and don't get me started on Gretna. Well, I'm about to, because the next seven days were about survival, and an integral part of the story. It's the next day and your mind is absolutely racing. You've lost everything of value. The things you lost may grow to include your family and friends too. But you don't know for sure yet. If you're lucky, someone came and rescued you. You've made it to dry land only to find out it's not any better there. People are desperate. There's debris and death everywhere. Some people are distraught and others are numb. People are hungry. Just the ambiance is scary, but it's truly a spooky sight. You're hungry, but unfortunately, FEMA and the Red Cross haven't shipped enough supplies. In later years, you'll find out a lot of resources that were meant for you never even made it to you and expired. Speaking of expired, a lot of the food that you do get is expired. There are accounts of people jumping from the interstate, and one man detailed that an entire family held hands, toddlers and parents, and jumped to their deaths. That's how dire and hopeless the situation was. But you know what never ceased during this time? Classism and racism. So obviously people are in survival mode. The Superdome and the convention center aren't much of a shelter. And less than 24 hours after the levee's breach, the governor says that there needs to be an effort to get people out of the Superdome. Mind you, people are still trapped in their homes and on their roof throughout the city and surrounding parishes. People are out trying to get supplies and food. One problem that the Superdome specifically was having was that water was seeping in. By the first day, the toilets had backed up and water shortages were rampant. To make matters worse, some people couldn't even get in and had to camp out in the heat. And the smell was nauseating. Survivors report rapes and a man even jumped from the top to his death. Here's what one reporter had to say after only visiting the Superdome when the survivors left. I spent only a fraction of the time thousands of terrified people spent in here, but I couldn't wait to escape the suffocating atmosphere of this nightmarish place. 
It was really a hopeless case, and resources weren't even coming to the point where they were about to riot behind the food. Trucks with the supplies necessary can't even get there. A total of around 20,000 people were at the Superdome until they were finally bussed and flew people out. Then we take a trip to the convention center, which is 1.5 miles away. The convention center was never even meant or deemed as a shelter, but 25,000 people were there, including tourists. There were no supplies there whatsoever. No food, no medicine, none of it. And FEMA nor the National Guard had any clue people were seeking shelter there. Those who couldn't make it to shelter were living on bridges trying to fend for themselves essentially the entire week. The governor is trying to get everyone out of the city, but 80% of the city is underwater, so they have no choice but to do their best to survive. In this type of climate, the laws aren't going to matter because with no food, no clean water, really no guaranteed chance of surviving, you either break the law or you die. You tell me which one you're choosing. Now, something else that rubbed me the wrong way was based on the words of people who experienced this. News outlets would describe the act of looking for food, looting, when it was black people, but when it was white people or the white tourists, it was looking for supplies. It may not have been a blatant act of classism or racism, but regardless, it was a microaggression and a hefty one at that because now the rescue efforts made by the police changed. By Wednesday, the city was flipped inside out. People were dying in the shelter and on the streets, but what's sad is it didn't have to be this way. The United States is known to be a country that gives relief to other countries, whether it's because of wars or because of natural disasters. But when it was right in the country, you could have found a way to get them resources within hours. I'm not buying it. As people continue to break into stores, Mayor Nagin ordered the police to stop search and rescue efforts, but instead focus on law and order. In a lot of the videos I watched, a lot of the people were stealing to survive. Others were taking advantage of the moment and getting the things they wanted. And ironically enough, the people taking advantage of the moment included some NOPD officers. The National Guard, however, aren't handling the law enforcement because they're still going to rescue people under Governor Blanco's orders. To add insult to injury, the media is portraying New Orleans to be extremely violent and misconstruing the facts or completely fabricating news. For example, certain media outlets said 200 people died in the Superdome. The actual number was six, four from natural causes, one from overdose, and one from suicide. The footage that they showed of New Orleans became synonymous to the footage they show of third world countries, and this is right at home. Relief from the federal government wasn't coming for them, so others gave to Louisiana, including Mike Kinnick, the owner of a bus company from a small town out of Minneapolis, who sent six busloads of supplies to Natchitoches and Shreveport. These types of actions were evident throughout the week, as well as months and even years to follow, which is upsetting because the job of these state and federal officers were to protect and serve, come up with plans, and provide aid and relief. Communications had been cut off for days, and they needed federal aid. Before we talk about the aid, let me finish talking about our trusty police officers, who unfortunately 
made the situation worse by confiscating guns, preventing people from leaving, and causing a reign of terror. When listening to people's story from the Superdome, one man describes trying to leave because the conditions were so poor. One place people tried to go was Gretna to no avail. Others tried to cross the Danzinger Bridge. For two unarmed civilians, this was the worst possible choice they could have made. What's truly laughable is how 239 officers deserted their posts when Katrina made landfall as if NOPD wasn't and isn't having enough problems as it is. When it came to Gretna, the stereotypes and harmful rhetoric made the situation worse for everyone involved. According to the people who tried to cross the Crescent City connection, their reasoning for even being on that bridge was because a commanding officer said they had buses waiting for them to get them out of the city on the other side. As they made their way to the other side, they soon realized that Gretna wasn't actually receptive for them. Gretna police were waiting for them with shotguns and said there was no buses waiting on the other side for them. When they tried to set up camp, they brought in a helicopter to essentially scare them off and push them off the bridge. When talking to the people who witnessed this, this is what they had to say about the reasoning for not being allowed in Gretna. Why do you think you were turned away? I think because the group was 95% African-American. Is that the way you all feel? Yes. Do you have any evidence to support that? A group of people trying to leave the city that's predominantly African-American, and you have the officers who are white, that's the way it appears. And in that situation, that's the way you feel. We weren't given any information as to why we couldn't leave. Just appearance alone would make me feel that way. Although they fired their shotguns, no one was killed. The same can't be said about the incident on Danzinger Bridge. On September 4, 2005, a call came in to NOPD detailing there was gunfire and insinuating that an officer was in distress at the Danzinger Bridge. At that time, two families were on the bridge and involved in this situation. They're the Bartholomew and the Madison family that consisted of Leonard Bartholomew III, Susan Bartholomew, Leisha Bartholomew, Leonard Bartholomew IV, Jose Holmes, and James Brissett. The Madison family consisted of Lance Madison and Ronald Madison. As they were crossing the bridge, at least nine NOPD officers came out of a budget rental truck in plain clothing and began to ambush the Bartholomews. They did their best to take cover by jumping behind concrete barriers, but unfortunately, James, a friend of one of the family members, died on the scene. While this is going on, the Madisons are trying to run, to which one of the police officers chased them in an unmarked car and shoot Ronald Madison in the back. He collapses and dies at the Friendly Inn Motel. Lance, his brother, is arrested and booked with attempted murder of a police officer. Out of everyone in this situation, two people were killed, four were injured, and two were unharmed. And then in both situations, the one in the Gret with Gretna police and the one with NOPD, the police forced back their decisions. In fact, 
the Gretna situation was pretty laughable to me because even the mayor backed them. When he was asked his reasoning, I don't know if it's just me, but there was some racial undertones and microaggressions within that reason. But who am I to point the fingers, right? All in all, these two situations and the way that other police dealt with the situation only proves one point. Even in the worst possible moments, the officers had their best interest in mind, and not really those who had needed them the most. And the police department was going to back them regardless. Once they stopped the press conferences and giving FEMA a false sense of heroism, New Orleans residents were finally evacuated and the city was empty. Some people were sent to the Houston Astrodome, others to different places around the country. There are reports of an illegal alligator farm being flooded in New Orleans, and because of that, some bodies were never recovered. That may not sound feasible, but during Hurricane Ida, a man was eaten by an alligator, so I wouldn't doubt that at all. By the end of the week, a total of 1,392 people died on record, but other reports have the death toll closer to 2,000. At least 986 of these deaths were Louisiana residents. To some, Katrina was a natural disaster and it just so happened to affect New Orleans in the way that it did. To others, it was the perfect political storm. Multiple sources allege that the Bush administration didn't move as fast as they should have because of the fact that Kathleen Blanco was a Democrat and they had little sympathy because they didn't get the people out when they could have and should have. This would be ridiculous because citizens had nothing to do with that. But nonetheless, after a week, those remaining in the city finally got relief. Now, I know this episode is on the longer end, but I didn't even get to what happened to some of the most vulnerable people. The sick, the elderly, and the babies. I figured that this episode was tense enough and had a lot of information, but I truly appreciate it if you listened this far. In my next episode, I'll be talking about what happened to the elderly, the investigations regarding levees, the cost of damages, and how they rebuilt New Orleans and the soul of the city to the best of their ability. If you would like to hear more from me, make sure you follow or subscribe to wherever you're tuning in at. Conversations with Condi is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Google Podcasts, so remember to turn on your alerts so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. It gets really deep, and honestly, it can make you mad. I'll be posting ways that I unwind after deep conversations in my After Hours segment on Instagram at ConvosWCondi, as well as my TikTok, Chronicles of Condi. Let me know how you feel about topics as well and share this episode because everyone should have conversations to change the world.